1965, there was a, a Hal David Burt Bacharach song release. Um, the song was called What the World Needs Now is Love. Some of you may remember this song. Oddly enough, the song is addressed to God, but not as a petition. It's addressed to God as a prayer. Oddly enough, it's actually not even a prayer. It's more like an FYI, okay? Here's the last line of the bridge that leads into the chorus. It says, oh, listen, Lord, if you want to know what the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. Anyone else hear Dion Warwick's uh, voice still in that when, when you see that? Um, so here's kind of what he says. Oh, oh listen, Lord, if, if you, if you want to know, it's kind of like, God, you really did a great job up to this point. Right? So some of the verses deal with how beautiful the meadows and the mountains are. God, you've done a really, really, really good job with creation. But just between me and you, i got to tell you, you, have, you didn't give enough love. Right? And so in the, in the, in the 60s especially, right, the answer to anything that felt empty was love. Right? In 1971, an ad man by the name of Harvey Gabor gathered 20-somethings from all over the world on Italian hillside and they spent $250,000 in 1971 dollars and 2023 dollars, that's 1.9 million, to produce an ad for Coca-Cola, all right? And, and, and the, the ad campaign was anchored by this song with this hook. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I would like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. In the 70s, extreme social unrest, and, and, and Coca-Cola's answer to this unrest was a Coke and a conversation, Coke and a conversation. So I was in, I was, uh, in the late 70s, I was in high school, and I started seeing people with this T-shirt, and um, we get, so, so there's, your, there's your ad, Coca-Cola, it's the real thing. Here was the T-shirt uh, I saw floating around, Jesus Christ in the Coca-Cola font, he's the real thing. Um, I never had one of those T-shirts, um, but I, can, I, I remember thinking the person that made that T-shirt had a complete understanding that if we would put the world's empty and had to try to address it, that was way too much pressure for a carbonated beverage. <laughs> right? There had to be something else that we can lean into when things were empty. The core answer to the world's empty, to your empty my empty is hope. N not hope as an emotion. Biblical hope is a, is, a, um, is a consistent, confident expectation. Not like, well, I hope this happens or don't get your hopes up. It is, it is a confident expectation in any time the Hebrew or the Greek is used for the word hope. And then more specifically, Jesus is referred to as hope. So our hope is not in an emotion, it's in a person. 1 Timothy 1, 1 and 2, Paul says this to his son in the faith. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our what? Hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so Paul's identifying hope in the person of Christ, and with that hope comes grace and comes peace and comes mercy. That's Jesus. Then in Colossians, he says this. He says, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
So it's not just a, a Christ we look to. We look to a Christ in empty. In fact, it is, it is Christ we carry into whatever seems and appears to be empty. Um, one of the most um, empty periods in my life was my mom passed away in 02. When she passed away in 02, I was 38, she was 58. Plenty of people lose parents young. My mom lost her mom at age 52. I remember being in a Sunday service. I was on staff at a large church in Atlanta. And on that particular morning, I was, um, I had called her. She was not having a good day. And so, in fact, that I wasn't having a good day. And I came to the altar that morning to pray, to literally, I mean, to beg God to do something. And I remember in that prayer, I heard God as much as I've ever heard God in my life say to me, my grace is sufficient. And immediately I thought, mom's going to be healed. But almost on the tag of me feeling that way, I felt like the Lord said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what I said. What I said was, my grace is sufficient. And then my mind remembered the passage of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 12. These are the words that follow my grace is sufficient. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I want Oh, oh. What, what, I, what, what I want to try to convey today is that this kind of phrase here, that empty is an illusion, that empty is an illusion and hope is an anchor. It is what anchored the book that God dropped in my heart 10 years ago that I didn't have the guts to write until last year <laughs> or this year. Um, and it is the heart of this message that there are plenty of times we find ourselves in situations that we would define as empty. They feel empty, they look empty, but in fact, what I want to prove to you today is that empty is an illusion and hope is an anchor. Um, lost my mom three months later. But three months later, I was a different man than I was three months before. Because when God spoke it to me in that moment, I knew he was aware and I knew he was near. And it was true that his grace was sufficient for my mom, for me, for my dad. And then Paul's words in Thessalonians say, we aren't like those who grieve without hope. We, we still grieve. There are circumstances that seem and feel empty and the grief is still a part of that process. But what I think the church needs to grab a hold of more and more and more is it's not the fact that we are followers of Christ doesn't eliminate grieving for us. Grief actually is a gift God gives to us. But we can grieve with hope, with confident expectation. There is something else waiting for us, and we are not here just waiting this out by ourselves. So let me prove to you that empty is an illusion. Here's Genesis 1, 1 through 3. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and what? Empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. 
And God said, let there be light, and there was light. First five words of the Bible tell us empty doesn't exist. In the beginning, God created the heavens, or in the beginning, God created, which means that God had to precede empty. So, so what was empty? It was just empty of earth stuff, but it wasn't empty of the presence of God. So, so God precedes empty. If God precedes empty, then empty is an illusion. So I actually break it down this way. All right, God preceded empty. God was present in empty. God produces, produced full out of empty, which we'll get to in a minute. So the conclusion here is that empty is never empty. You follow the logical sequence. God precedes empty. That means he was present in empty. If he was present in empty, we also know he produced full out of empty. So then empty isn't empty. How did he produce full out of empty? Well, he hovered over it, which we'll get to in detail in a minute. I love when it says, let there be light. And I always wonder, well, who are you talking to? And what are you talking to? He was talking into empty. He was talking into darkness. Did, did he do it in this James Earl Jones voice? Was it like this really loud, confident, you know, rally the troops thing? Did he just kind of step out on the side and say, yeah, let there be light? I mean, was it, was it understated? I, I, I'm curious, I would love to hear, except in the NIV, at least has an exclamation point. So I'm taking that, I'm taking that he maybe had to, had to yell it out and shout it. And he speaks into what all of us will consider darkness and emptiness. Right? Darkness always seems to indicate um, no hope, um, empty. You know, who, who wants to be in, in the dark when you can be in the light? Light always ends up bringing to us confidence, um, hope. And so in this, in this phrase, let there be light, and he speaks into this, he tells us now that not just is Christ the one that shines a light on something, but he is the light. This is the beauty about worshiping God. We, we, we learn about his character because it's his character that we have leaned and given ourselves to. We haven't given ourselves to outcomes. See, one of the big things about hope is I understand that we can connect hope to outcomes. But as a follower of Christ, we need to connect our hope to Christ, not outcomes. Right? So when we connect to an outcome and the outcome doesn't happen the way we think, then we, go, we get down, we feel empty. But when we connect our hope to a person and we surrender the, the outcome to him, then we can never be disappointed because we're still connected to the person of Christ. I understand that situations can feel and seem empty. Here's how I define empty for myself. I define empty for myself when I don't have the resources to, 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 to overcome it. When I don't have the intellect to overcome it, when I don't have the financial resources to overcome it, when I don't have someone else I can call to help me overcome it. Like when, I mean, nothing truly to me feels empty until I've run out of options. But when I run out of options, whoa, whoa, that feels empty. And here's something I want to teach you today is that you can't trust your eyes or your feelings or even your ability to reason in situations that appear to be empty. You have to trust the truth. With God, empty is an illusion. Hope is an anchor. And this is important in our culture today specifically. Emotions and feelings are real, but that doesn't make them true. You can't deny how you feel. You can't deny your emotions. Those are real. Those are real. But it doesn't mean they're true. So empty evokes emotions that aren't true. Hovering. How did he create the full? He said he hovered over it. 
He hovered over it. That word is used two other times in Scripture. One in the Old Testament in 1 Kings, Samuel or Solomon builds the first temple. And there is a prayer of dedication for the temple. And after he prays for the temple, said that the Spirit of God hovered over the temple. And when it did, it fills this temple. How do you know it fills the temple? Because the Levites and the priests that were there performing their duties, it says they could not stand up. That literally, everyone that was assigned a task that was anywhere near the tabernacle, they went to their knees. They didn't go to their knees for any other reason than the weight of the presence of God started descending into that space. And so this space is filled with air, right? This is not an open space, just an open space. This is filled with air. You can feel it moving around. We're breathing it. But now if we, if we put in 80% humidity in this room, you would feel it, right? right? And so that's, there's, a, there's a weight to that, right? That it's, it's weight. So this is the weight of God. He's hovering over. And he takes this beautiful but empty building and he changes it into a sanctuary, a refuge, a place where he says that he would never turn his face from. And that is the second time the word hover is used. The time in the New Testament that it's used is when the angel comes to speak to Mary. And he comes to speak to Mary to tell her that she's going to give birth to a Messiah. Now, she only has one question, but I have a few more. Her people have been waiting for this day for several thousand years. And today, a Tuesday, a Sunday, a Thursday, a Friday, two, let's pick Tuesday afternoon at two o'clock. Can there be a more boring day and time than Tuesday at two? An angel appears to Mary and says, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. My thinking, why now? We've waited all this time. And here's a hope maxim. I didn't write it out as a hope maxim. But when you wait that long for something, it's easy to lose hope. When you've brought something or you've been looking for something so long, it's easy just to not get your hopes up anymore. The second here is that no one expected to have to wait on a Messiah to grow up. No one was looking for a baby, right? You're going to give birth to the Messiah. Wait a minute, birth? I thought the man was going to show up and start taking names is what I thought was going to happen, right? A baby... And here's the hope maxim number two here for me, is, is that um, hope can look much differently than you imagine. And that's my point about pushing our hope into a person and not an outcome. You know, if, if God has said that he can do exceedingly abundantly above all we can think or imagine, why would we then insert our limited answer to what we hope something looks like? I mean, from the get-go, we're shortchanging ourselves. Right, But if I lean into Christ and I say, my hope is in you for this outcome, I just can't wait to see what it looks like. That is hopeful expectation. Three, I'm, if I'm her, I'm asking out of all the women in the world, how did I qualify? How did I qualify? I want to know. Obviously, I've qualified. You've picked me. I would like to enjoy the moment. And you tell me how I qualified. Right? Here's the hope maxim number three. Few people, though, feel worthy of hope. Or is it just me? 
Is it just me when I find myself in an empty circumstance that I have beat myself or have allowed the circumstance to beat me, beat me down so far that I don't feel worthy of any answer or hope? And then the question that she did ask, she wasn't married yet, she was a virgin, how is this going to be? And the maxim for me out of hope here is it's easier to believe in the empty you feel than the hope you're promised. You can sit in empty so long, it just, that's the reality of your life. And it really doesn't matter who speaks into it. You've sat in that empty and it just feels like that's the only thing that's real. Now, the answer that the angel gives to Mary is one of the kind of most um, hope-giving passages when she says, how can this be? And he says, nothing is impossible with God. But actually, when you translate that more closely to, to the Greek there, it reads, and no word of God will fail. Whoa. So what's the angel basically saying? God sent me to speak to you. These are not my words. These are his words. And how is it going to be possible? Because when God speaks a word, it never fails. It always produces what was promised. And I've learned this through my journey of writing this book. If you wait to live in hope, if you wait until the answer is given, you're going to live a lot of life not in hope. So here's my advice. When God speaks hope into your situation, take his word for it. Take a hold of that word. Live in the confident expectation. Hey, there I know there's roller coasters involved with this. But if I just say, well, prove it. All right, this is what you said. Well, I'm going to sit here with my arms crossed until you deliver. And when you deliver, then I'll be hopeful. Now, I will say I, I can be like that quite easily. I can be grumpy fast. And I can actually enjoy it sometimes. So, so, so I, can, I can sit, and my wife is leaving for a week, and la- yesterday she said, please don't come home and just sit in that chair with the lights out until I come back home. I'm pr- anybody else prone to that? Is anybody else prone? Okay, my congregation would admit it. You don't know me. You're not going to admit anything to me. Okay, I get it. I'm prone to that. But when God speaks a word of hope into your situation, believe it. I think that empty actually is a frame God uses to demonstrate to us his scope. I understand that the enemy wants to use empty to frame how small we are. But God has a different use of that empty. He takes that empty and he shows us how large he is. One of the best definitions of God to me is found in Romans 4 where he says that um, he is the God who calls things that are not as if they were. And this is his history. He's really good at bringing stuff out of nothing. Lord, I don't see how you're going to answer this. Yeah, I'm pretty good at that. I don't see how you can bring any full out of this empty. Been there, done that. This is his specialty of creating these kind of things. Um, I think as, as we're kind of, as we're growing in Christ, I think one way we look at Christ is that he can, um, he can take away all my stuff. Like he can take, it, take away my problems. 
that, that, um, and that he, you know, he, he can step in and he can, and he can just kind of do. But God's specialty isn't making stuff go away. God's specialty really is bringing stuff out of nothing. And we really limit God when we see God as the one we go to when just we need stuff moved out of our way. When God is the one who creates things out of no things. The two greatest symbols of Christianity are empty. Now look at your glass doors. Beautiful facility. I've been in here multiple times with Jason and other, uh, and other uh, events and things. And it's a beautiful facility you have here. It's honoring to the Lord. Can I say that? It's honoring to the Lord. You, the spirit in the house today through worship, um, it was very peaceful, very settling. Uh, it's honoring to the Lord. And I see the two crosses etched in the glass very creatively coming in. And the beauty of those crosses aren't in its shape and it's not in the material. It's not even in the act that they represent. It's in that they're empty. The cross was meant to destroy not just the man Jesus, but the movement of Christianity. It was meant to defame him, defraud him, cursed is the man that is crucified on the tree. It was meant to shut everything down. And Jesus never shies away from going to the cross, does he? He scorns its shame. He hangs there. And when he says it is finished, whoa, more was finished than just his life, right? It's empty. That's in its power. And it was meant to be something that would kill something. And it was something that resurrected all of us. He embarrasses Satan on the cross. Scripture tells us that he embarrasses us. He triumphs over him. It, the, the language in those passages is if a military leader was defeated and came before me as the king of the, of the winning nation and you would strip first off their, uh, all their medals and everything that would indicate all their previous battle won and would strip them down naked and parade them through this. And I know that sounds a little crass, but this is what he did on the cross. You continue to act like you're in charge, Satan. You continue to trip up and try to demean, and I'm, we're done with that now. And then the second was, is the tomb. The tomb is empty. No one knows where this tomb would be because we'd all line up and buy a T-shirt that had a tomb on it or something, right? Right? The tomb was supposed to say that when our life is done, it's just done. There's nothing to hope for. This is all we got. Make the most of it because once this is done, it's done. And the tomb tells us that is not true. I've reminded my congregation multiple times this summer, heaven is not going to be a better version of this. It is going to be wholly different. We think, well, if we can just, you know, like my knees won't just be better. They're going to, it's going to be in a new body. You know what I'm saying? And so, so, so the tomb being empty promises us this is not our home. So because it's not our home, there's two things we need to remember. One, let's not get too attached to it, but let's not get too despondent in, in it either. We can get just as easy too despondent because of where we are than we can too attached to where we are. Um, this, is a, this is a powerful passage Paul gives us out of 2 Corinthians 
to demonstrate the power of, of Christ in us, the hope of glory. 2 Corinthians 4 says this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, we're circling back to Genesis 1 here, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in us the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So he, didn't, he, he talks about persecuted. Doesn't persecuted feel like an empty place? How about hard-pressed? Does that feel like an empty place? Perplexed. I don't know what the plan is. I don't know what the next move is. Does that, does that feel like an empty place? All these feel like empty places, but he's demonstrating they're, they're not empty. And let, me, let, me, let me illustrate it this way. Since, since we talked about Coke, too, I'm going to talk about Coke. So I got two Coke cans, and they look identical. They're identical cans, but there's a difference in these cans. The first can truly is empty. Right? The second can is the same can. Now, I would do more, but the last time I fell when I did this. Here, let's, let's do that. Because Jason didn't make me sign a waiver. So what's the difference? See, it, it's, to me, it's an illustration of when I have the hope of Christ inside of me, it does not stop the perplexed. It does not stop the overwhelmed. It's not going to stop the persecution. But the PSI inside this can was greater than the PSI that was standing on top of it. And here's what happens when we carry the hope of Christ. And the reason why we're carrying it in clay is because we are, we are a great demonstration of the power of Christ, when we will understand that we are weak. See, I can tout my strength all day long and draw a lot of people to me, and for what good? None. There would be no good in drawing anybody to you or to me. But we have this power in jars of clay because when, uh, when our weak, frail, limited when we demonstrate strength, hope, courage in the face of what anybody else would identify as empty, we point people to Christ. And we point people to the hope that they can have when they feel and find their way in things that are empty. So empty is an illusion. Christ precedes, is in the middle of, and produces full out of empty. And here's the last point then hope is an anchor. So empty is an illusion, and our hope in Christ is an anchor. Here's Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. I want to read it to you out of the Amplified Version. 
For when God made the promise to Abraham, he swore an oath by himself, since he had no one greater by whom to swear. Can you imagine God saying, I swear to God? (laughs) Saying, surely I will bless you, I will surely multiply you. And also having patiently waited, he realized the promise and the miraculous birth of Isaac as a pledge of what was to come from God. Indeed, men swear an oath by one greater than themselves, and with them in all disputes, the oath serves as a confirmation of what has been said and is an end of the dispute. In the same way, God, in his desire to show to the heirs the promise, the unchangeable nature of his purpose, intervened and guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie. No word of God will ever, what, fail. We who have fled to him for refuge would have strong encouragement and indwelling strength to hold tightly to the hope set before us. This hope, this confident assurance we have as an anchor for the soul, it cannot slip, it cannot break down under whatever pressure bears upon it. A safe and a steadfast hope that enters within the veil of the heavenly temple, that most holy place in which the very presence of God dwells, where Jesus has entered in advance as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. When when Jesus said it is finished, we have record of the large tapestry that hung and surrounded the Holy of Holies, the place where the high priest would enter one time a year to offer, um, for, uh, offer sacrifice for the nation's sins. No one goes behind that veil. In fact, they would sew bells in the bottom of the high priest's robe in case he was not consecrated he would die walking into the presence of God. And if they heard no bells, they would pull out the priest. And when Jesus said, it is finished, this wasn't an act of vandalism. It was an act of God. That this veil tears forever than Jesus bridging the gap between us and our creator. That he is now at the right side of the Father, making intercession for you and I. He is our anchor. He sits and knows and is aware. He speaks into the times where we can't even hear maybe him. That his presence can settle where we can feel the weight of his glory even in the middle of those circumstances. He, this anchor, anchors keeping us from going too far in the swales, not straying too far in the storms, that we can hold on to him, this unchangeable, immutable presence of God in Christ. When you read this out of the message, this is what verses 18 through 20 says. We who have run for our very lives to God have every reason to grab the promised hope with both hands and never let it go. 
It's an unbreakable spiritual lifeline reaching past all appearances right to the very presence of God where Jesus, running on ahead of us, has taken up his permanent post as a high priest for us in the order of Melchizedek. Empty is an illusion. Hope is a what? An anchor. You know, it means a lot to us that you would come here today and be a part of who we are. It really does matter to us more than you might realize. Sometimes I think we underestimate the power we have to influence people. You know, if you would look around your world, you'd be amazed at how many people would receive what you have to say to them. You could be a digital missionary. You don't have to post everything on Facebook or we're not asking you to go on your favorite social platform, but I would challenge you to look around your world I guarantee you might have a friend, even in a different state or another part of the world, something was said today, whether a sermon, a prayer, a song, something was said that could mean a lot to them. Man, send it to them. You'd be amazed at how much of a difference that could make.